invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Nahum, the minor prophet. We begun this a couple of weeks back. We're going to continue our journey in this book. The main message of the prophet of Nahum is God's judgment is an expression of God's severity, but and his goodness and compassion to his people. In fact, just look at chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. This is really the main message of the whole thing. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness. So you really have both ideas there, right? God's goodness to his people, but also his judgment to his enemies. Read this week of a little girl by the name of Alina. She was just five years old. She was diagnosed with pediatric brain cancer. And her parents chose not to tell her the news. But somehow she must have come to understand what was happening in the nine months before she died. After she passed in 2007, her parents and younger sister began finding all these little notes all throughout the house. She would love to draw a purple heart and say, I love you. And she hid these all throughout the house, and they found over a hundred of them. That type of love that a little five-year-old could have of a dying child is, inspires awe. But God's love is the source and fountain of all human love. It's awe-inspiring. In our text today, as I just read verse 7, we see that he is a caring refuge for those who trust in him. This doesn't mean that he's a pushover because, right, as I just read in verses 8 and actually 9 and 10, that he is powerful, he is committed to the condemnation of Nineveh, that wicked city. None escape his judgment. The enemies of the Lord are doomed, and they will be burned up like stubble in a dry field, and no one can resist his will. Well, let's uh, go ahead and read. I'm going to read from verses, I'll, I'll read the entire chapter. <clears throat> The oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Echoshite, a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In a whirlwind and storm in his way, the clouds and dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither, the blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence. The world and all its inhabitants, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure his burning anger? His wrath is poured out like a fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight, 
and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Amen. And we'll pause there and read the rest when we get there. Let's pray. Father, we do confess our utter need of you, even during this hour. Quicken our minds, O God. Help us to gird up our loins, the loins of our understanding, the loins of our um, ability to be able to listen. Lord, we pray that you would have your way in our hearts, even this day, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, last time we talked about this fellow, Nahum. He's all over the Bible, isn't he? I mean, we see him in how many books of the Bible? Only here. How many verses of the Bible? Only the first verse. He basically introduces himself, where he's from. We don't know where that's at. Um, There's all kinds of speculation. But he was a prophet. He was given a vision. And then he just fades into the background, right? And then it's the oracle, the burden that he has And so, the date could be anywhere from 660 to 612. I explained at length of how we know it's between that time. 612 is when Nineveh was actually destroyed. What we're going to see next week and the week after is the utter destruction of Nineveh. And never to come back again. And so, we know that was in 612. Most likely, the prophecy was within a year or two before that. So, um, that's our time frame. But he writes with such vivid clarity. It's as though he's an eyewitness, and he's viewing this, and he's painting a word picture. The brutality of the Assyrians uh, was well known for enemies of the Lord's people for centuries. The walls around Nineveh would be wallpapered with human skin, especially around the 14 gates around the city there, to warn enemies to beware. This could be, you could be hanging up there, your skin. They would stack skulls of victims to instill fear in the enemies there. And they groaned with such power. The inner city was surrounded by a wall that was eight miles of circumference. The walls were a hundred feet high, which is amazing to think about, especially in that day and age. And then the wall, the, the, the top of the walls were so wide, three chariots could race around the city. It's remarkable to think that this exact city was the one that repented 140 years before at the preaching of Noah. Every single inhabitant repented from the king down. But oh, what happened in just three generations or so? And then we have this description of their wickedness, their brutality. And so today as we come to our text, I'll remind you that verses 2 to 8 is a victory hymn. It's similar to some of the other Psalms, Psalm 9, even Psalm 114, that we had read in our hearing. It's a a victory dedicated to the divine warrior, Yahweh. And so we're going to look at this under three simple points. God's power, verses 2 to 6. God's provision, verse 7 to 8a. And then God's pronouncement of judgment. Uh, with the rest of the text. So first of all, God's power. God's power. We see a few different things here listed. In verse 2, we see the severity of the character of God. It says that He is a jealous God. It says three times that He will execute vengeance. Avenging, avenging, and vengeance. It's the same root word. We talked about last time, when you have the same word repeated three times in the Hebrew, it's for what? Emphasis to get our attention. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We don't ever doubt that He's not holy. Well, here, the emphasis here is that He is a vengeful 
God. He does not wink at sin. He does not overlook its sin. He will execute judgment on his enemies. But then you have the severity of God that's moderated by his patience. Look at the first phrase in verse 3. The Lord, slow to anger. Oh, but great in power. You know, that is a beautiful thing. The Lord being slow to anger is a a, a Hebrew term that means long of nose. Get Pinocchio out of your mind. That's not what we're talking about. Long of nose. And, And the idea is that the nose, specifically the flaring of the nostrils, represents anger. And so when, when we're told that God is slow to anger, it's he's long of nose. It means he's very slow to anger. The Lord's anger does not flare up unreasonably, but his patience is great. And no one should dare presume upon his patience. Remember, we just finished the book of Joel and that call to repentance there. And 2.13, it says, Rend your hearts and not your garments return to the Lord your God, for He is what? Gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And He relents over disaster. I think surely Nahum knew about Jonah the prophet and, um, and even had a sense of the patience of God in that. Remember in chapter 4, you can just turn back about probably about three or four pages in your Bible, going backwards towards Genesis, and you come to Jonah 4, and you'll remember Jonah was the prophet. That we, don't, we don't want to send evangelists in the world like, like Jonah. He secretly desired that they would not repent, <laughs> but they do repent. And so here he is complaining to God, chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. What displeased Jonah? The various, right before there, that God relented at their repentance. It greatly displeased him. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents at calamity. So here you have the unlikely prophet moaning and groaning that God is gracious and compassionate, but I don't want those people saved. I'll take all that compassion and, and slow to anger on myself. And so I think Nahum knew something of that. Even in the New Testament, we're told the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. We even read in that glorious chapter, Romans 9, where it says, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath that are prepared for destruction? You know, that's, that's something that Christians sometimes struggle with. You know, we see this injustice we see oppression in the world and we're like come on god have you fallen asleep are you on vacation execute justice but his timetable is not like our timetable he's patient even with vessels of wrath that are prepared for destruction 
Now, the rest of verse 3 paints a vivid picture of, of God as warrior here. Look, uh, so he's slow to anger, great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. And whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He will by no means clear the guilty. Remember when Moses asked to see God? And God gave him some kind of a glance backside, right? But in, in Exodus 34, you have both of these elements wedded together in a more familiar passage than Nahum. It says, Then the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands and forgives the iniquity and transgression and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and their grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. The absolute certainty of God's judgment is before us, brethren. We, we see it. There's no, there's no dodging it. There's no escaping it. The absolute judgment of God is coming, and it is foolish for us, even in the new covenant, to disregard God's commands. We're to walk uprightly and justly before our God. We're to walk in humility. We're to walk in obedience. We've been studying in the Catechism the Ten Commandments. You want to examine yourself on how you're doing? Put yourself against those Ten Commandments on your knees before the Lord. You see, a holy God does not ignore acts of wickedness. Yes, even those acts when it's just you and you think nobody else can see. Well, God sees. He sees. And we need God to forgive us. We need God to motivate us and convict us by the Spirit that we would confess those sins, that He would cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's impossible to do in our own strength. This is why we need Christ. This is why we need our great high priest who bled and died for our sins, but now ascended and prays for us. He's on our side if you're in Christ. He will be that warrior that we see in Revelation coming on that white horse to his enemies, to anyone who's outside of Christ. So in this language here, it's the Lord is being painted in this hymn, as it were, as a, a great warrior marching out to battle, and a whirlwind and a storm is his way. The clouds and dust are beneath his feet. No one can stop his hand great in power. Well, verses uh, uh, 3b through 5, we see our sovereign God is powerful in his nature. No one can stop his hand. He's powerfully governing all of his creation. We find many such verses, as I said in the Psalms, about God's mighty power, about his power over the earth. God is sovereign, even in, pictured in the New Testament, even our Lord Jesus Christ, as he's asleep in the back of a boat with his disciples, and they're crossing the Sea of Galilee, and a huge storm whips up. The winds, the way the mountains were around that lake, would stir up the water. So it would be almost, not quite a hurricane, but it would be a little bit more than just heavy rains and a, and a breeze, okay? And, 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 and so what happens, Jesus is beckoned, help, we're perishing, don't you care? And what does he do? He displays his utter sovereignty over creation. He rebukes the wind and said to the sea, hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. Can you imagine what that would look like? Raging storm, 
Okay, look, I don't know what Peter looked like, but I picture him as a kind of a big dude, probably muscles. If they had tattoos back then, probably big old tattoos and a big burly dude. He's not going to get, he's not going to think he's perishing by a little bit of rain and a wind. I mean, this was big enough to where they thought they were going to die. And then to see Jesus awake, see his humanity, that he's sleeping, right? He's, he's sleeping. Yes, he got tired. His humanity, he got hungry, he got tired. There he is sleeping, and he's woken up, and what happens? He displays his deity, and it just became perfectly calm. Can you imagine that? For these men, for these disciples, to witness such things as that, and yet they were still filled with so much doubt until after the resurrection. Psalm 134 Familiar passage, he lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters. He makes his clouds his chariot. He walks upon the wings of the wind. Talks about in verse 4 here that he rebukes the seed, dries up the river. Then look at here. Basham and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. You know what those are? Those are places that were known for lush, uh, lush wooded areas of Palestine. The uh, trees of Lebanon were famous for being mighty, invincible trees, and yet it says that their bloom will fade, they will utterly dry up. Again, picturesque language that when Yahweh comes as a warrior on the scene, the unusual happens. Verse 5 describes the climax of his awesome presence. Look at this. The Yahweh shows up, the divine warrior. What happens? Mountains quake because of him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence. The world and all the inhabitants of it, Yahweh's come on the scene. Rocks are shattered. Enemies are utterly inescapable. Verse 6, it just keeps building. Look at it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure his burning anger? His wrath is poured out like a fire. It's really the climax of verses 2 to 6. This indignation, burning, wrath like a fire. Who can stand? Or to put it another way, who can resist his will? Judges 2.14, So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to the plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of the surrounding enemies, so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. So there you have the same Hebrew words, but it's used against uh, Israel itself and their disobedience. So like a mighty warrior, the Lord will attack his enemies. No one will be able to stand. No one will be able to stay his hand. Psalm 76, but you, you are to be feared who can stand before you once your anger is roused. See the picture here. This is a, 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 it's a frightening scene. <laughs> For big Nineveh, the strongest city in the world, with its fortress of 100-foot walls, with its conquering of the whole world feared them. They would send gifts to the king just to leave us alone. His wrath is like a fire. We're told in Malachi that he's like a refiner's fire. So this idea of burning anger and, and his wrath is poured out like a fire you know you, you were in southern california 
If you're new to the area, this is fire season. It's just getting started. Usually by September, October, but we've seen fires here. The Cedar Fire, 2003, 2007. um, One of those fires began on a Saturday night, and by Sunday morning, 100,000 acres have been burned. And and you've seen the videos, right? you've You've heard the roar. You've seen the spreading and the fast wind. I mean, that's what I think of when I, when, I, when I see that his wrath is like a fire. It's like a raging wildfire coming right towards you, and there's nowhere to go if you're his enemy. Psalm 18, verse 7. Again, there's so many verses, right? Uh, the earth shook and quaked at the foundations of the mountains, trembled and were shaken because he was angry, and smoke went up from his nostrils. Psalm, uh, Jeremiah 10.10. 10. In his wrath, at his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. So there's God's power, right? This is, this is Yahweh, the, the, the divine warrior coming on the scene to do what? To execute wrath on his enemies. Oh, but wait a minute. We see God's provision for the faithful, a provision of mercy. That's verses 7 and 8a, our second point, God's provision. I've already read it. It's the theme of the book. The Lord, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. What consolation, brethren? What comfort do we have as God's chosen people? Here you have a, a, a balancing statement of God's divine anger and wrath as a divine warrior, but now His, his comfort and consolation that He gives to His people. His goodness. Divine judgment is coming not only because God is a jealous God and an avenging God, but because God is good to His people. He sticks up for them. He's the big brother that will, that will fight off the bully, as it were, if you want to think of it like that. At first blush, this shift, a radical shift, might seem like that God is somehow changed from verses 2 to 6 and then to 7. But God is utterly immutable, he does not change. The same God that is the divine warning, his wrath to his enemies is compassionate and protective of his people. John Calvin said, divine judgments are always founded on the goodness of God. Let's sink in for a minute. Divine judgments are always founded on the goodness of God. God is a refuge and strength. We sing it. Augustus Toplady. What a what a an Anglican minister by the name of Augustus Toplady. And he wrote some amazing hymns in the 1700s. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Paul writes to Timothy, the second letter, chapter 2, verse 19. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands. Having this seal, the Lord knows who are His. And everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. The Lord knows who are His. We've read in Romans 9, there's vessels of wrath, there's vessels of mercy, right? Martin Luther said of this verse 7, it's an outstanding statement overflowing with consolation. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows 
those who take refuge in him. Other promises in the Psalms, the Lord, Psalm 9.9, the Lord also will be a stronghold to the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Psalm 50, call upon me in the day of trouble and I shall rescue you and you will honor and glorify me. Christians know where to find refuge in the new covenant, don't we? It's because a man went to a cross and Calvary was executed, was crucified on our behalf, and the Father put all of our sin upon the Son, and He paid for every last sin. He didn't pay for 99%, and then we've got to somehow pay for our 1%, right? That's an almost good God. (laughs) It's not like that. He's paid for every one of our sins, that our sins are glorious forgiven in the Lord Jesus Christ because he bled and died and took the Father's wrath, wrath that you deserve, he took it upon himself. So we've seen God's power, God's provision of mercy. Now our third point, God's pronouncement of judgment. Beginning in the middle of verse 8, he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness Whatever you devise against the Lord, he will make a complete end of it. Distress will not rise up twice like tangled thorns. And like those who are drunken with their drink, they are consumed as stubble, completely withered. From you has gone forth one who has plotted evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and likewise many, even so they will be cut off and pass away. Those who have, who have afflicted you, I, I will afflict you no longer. So now I will break the yoke bar from, among, from upon you, and I will tear off your shackles. Verse 14, the Lord has issued a, issued a command concerning you. Your name will no longer be Perpetuated, I will cut off idol and image from the house of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are contemptible. Behold, on the mountains, the feet of him who bring good news, who announces peace. Celebrate your feast, O Judah. Pay your vows. Never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is completely, he is cut off completely. So you have this back and forth that's a a taunting. We're going to see it next week even more. A taunting to Assyria. Like, what are you going to do? Bring your your warriors. And then a vindication for God's people that they will afflict you no longer. I'm going to break that yoke of oppression. So we see, first of all, this idea of this overflowing flood in verse 8. Notice it says, he will make a complete end of its sight. And then in verse 9, you have the same thing. Well, he says, whatever you devise against the Lord, O Assyria, he will make a complete end of it. So you have that repetition there. This is a, a cataclysmic event being described that's bringing a total end to this city. By the way, guess when the ruins of this city were discovered? 1842. So we're talking, we're in the 6th century B.C., 1800s, about 2,400 years. It took for all that rubble to actually be discovered. It's fascinating. These walls that were 100 feet tall, the vastness of the city, and Yahweh's 
prophet was right. It's going to bring a complete end to it, and your memory will be no more. The overwhelming flood has been interpreted in various ways. Uh, Certainly an invading military force, but it could actually mean exactly what it says. History tells us that the Mede and the Babylonians, they put a siege against the city. And they diverted the river for an entire season. It had the water go along the base of those big, huge walls. And then history tells us that the spring rains were unusually heavy in 612 B.C. And so the flooding of the rivers undermined the walls of the city. And history records that a huge section collapsed 21 furlongs long. So the invading armies just came right in, and they were unprepared. And so, you know, the repetition, verse 8, a complete end. He will make a complete end of whatever they devise. Distress will not rise up twice. The Lord frustrates the plans of his enemies. I think it's Psalm 2. Why why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising such a vain thing? You're fighting the divine warrior Yahweh. It's ridiculous. This idea in verse 10 of tangled thorns. They are senseless by sin, like a stumbling drunkard, right? One who is drunken from their drink. They are consumed as stubble, completely withered. That's utter destruction. Verse 11, they plot evil. From you has gone forth one who plotted evil against Yahweh, a wicked counselor. And then you see the idea of the Lord is good and liberates the tyrannical rule. Really, there's an encouragement to Judah. Seven times we're told throughout this this chapter that, that there will be a complete end to Nineveh. Your enemies of which you have been oppressed there will be a complete end to them. This idea that there's a flood and a complete end, that they're going to wither like stumble, stubble. And then in verse 12, it says that they are at full strength, and likewise many, even so, they will be cut off and pass away. Although the Assyrians had numerous allies, right? Who would dare say I'm not an ally of Assyria, right? They would just they would wipe them out. Judah was aware of how numerous the Assyrian troops were. Remember, 185,000 killed in 2 Kings that we read last week? That was just 185,000 of them. Um, so they were a vast army. But this idea that, that even the memory of them will be cut off and will pass away is, is the idea that the wickedness that was perpetuated is not going to continue it's like at the end of World War II, the Nazi culture that had developed there in Germany was largely destroyed. The culture, a system of beliefs and values that binds society together, that gives it an identity. And so just as Germany was defeated, the Nazis were defeated, that Nazi culture was sought to be erased from them. And Nahum is convinced that the Assyrian culture will be utterly destroyed. Verse 14, The Lord has issued a command concerning you. Your name will no longer be perpetuated. It will be a complete end. In verse 12, uh, the end of verse 12, though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no longer. Charles Spurgeon says, there may be today a great calm, 
Who knows how soon those raging billows will give place to the sea of glass and a, a seabirds sit on the gentle waves. After long tribulation, the flail is hung up and the wheat rests in the garner. We may, before many hours are past, be just as happy as now we are sorrowful. It is not hard for the Lord to turn night into day. He that sends the clouds can also easily clear the skies. Let us be of good cheer. It is better on than before. Let us sing hallelujah in anticipation. Again, verse 14, that even the descendants would be cut off. I'm going to cut off idol and image from the house of your gods. I will prepare your grave for you are contemptible, which the marginal reading means you are vile, you are cursed. Strong language. The descendants would be no more. Their idols and false gods would be destroyed, and ultimately they would be to the grave. Yet permanent victory and protection is assured for God's people. Verse 13 and 15. Look at verse 13. So now I will break his yoke bar from upon you, and I will tear off your shackles. Shackles. A yoke was a symbol of oppression. When it talked about that Israel, that there was a yoke over Israel, it was a symbol of oppression. I mean, think of how a yoke is placed on an ox, right? And it's to get that ox to do what you want it to do, to turn it, to move it, to, and all of that. And so Judah had become a slave to Assyria. And God promises to Judah that I'm going to break the yoke of slavery off the necks and set you free. Charles Spurgeon says, See, the Lord promises a present deliverance. Now I will break his yoke off of thee. Believe the immediate freedom, and according to thy faith, so shall it be unto thee, even this hour. When God says, Now let no man say tomorrow, see how complete the rescue is to be. The yoke is not simply removed, but it is broken. The bonds are not untied, but they are burst asunder. Here is a display of divine force which guarantees that the oppressor shall never return. Comforting language. And then verse 15, look at that. Behold! Behold! What does that communicate? There's a sudden transition from judgment to salvation. Behold on the mountains of the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. This is the sign. All of this destruction, and we're going to have more of it in chapter 2 and 3, and, and, and yet here's peace and good news and gospel that is here. It appears at first that he's quoting Isaiah 52.7, that familiar text which speaks to the same thing. Um, and then also Paul quotes it in Romans 10.15. But I think this is an a expression of po- in poetic form that um, is, is declaring that victory has been achieved. The feet belong to the herald who brings good news. The battle is won. The oppression is ended. Peace is now established. And so in light of that, celebrate your feast. Never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off completely. Celebrate your feast. Pay your vows. Keep your promises to the Lord. What a glorious thing. 
So that brings us to the end of chapter 1. A couple concluding comments. Lord willing, we're going to tackle all of 2 next week. And um, I haven't decided on chapter 3. It'll either be 1 or 2. But in conclusion, remember, God's judgment is an expression of his severity, but also his goodness to his people. How is this message of judgment a comfort to God's people? Well, that oppressors will be, that yoke will be broken and removed, the shackles will be um, taken away. I mean, you look all around us, we see a humanitarian crisis at our southern border. You see human trafficking on a scale that we just can't even imagine because the cartels and the borders being wide open, that's oppression, wickedness. You see the toxic drug overdoses from the fentanyl that's coming across at an all-time high. And, and, and you know, it's, it's very concerning. You see the brutal persecution of Christians around the world. We see even the wickedness in our various cities and, and the, the uh, crime that's not being punished. And it just perpetuates more and more of it the senseless killings that are not even provoked by anything that's happening all around us. But God is sovereign. He will not leave the guilty unpunished. But remember, His timetable is different than ours. <clears throat> We're tempted to say, like I said, God, are you there? Did you see that? What, what are you waiting for? Right, That kind of thing. But it's amazing, like the psalmist in Psalm 73 He's despairing over the prosperity of the wicked, right? He's, he's, surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. But what happens? It says, until I came into the house, of the sanctuary of God, then I perceive their end. This is why we need to have a robust doctrine of God. Right? We need to understand who God is. We need to understand all of His attributes and how they interact with each other. And not just try to lump all the attributes into one. No, there's multiple attributes, right? His justice is moderated by His love. His love is, is tempered by His justice. They all connect. His love and His justice are connected. And then we look at the wickedness of these Assyrians, and we say, well, maybe we haven't filleted our enemy and took the human skin and put it on our front doorpost, but we're guilty too. We're guilty of so much. There's nothing that is said of us here that is less damning than what is said in Nahum about Nineveh. If we're honest, they had turned from the one true God and so do we oftentimes. Their tongues practiced deceit, and so of ours. Their mouths were full of cursing and bitterness, and are, are our mouths always pure completely? They were swift to shed blood, and our society, look how swift we are to shed blood. Can it not be said of many today that there is no fear of God before their eyes? This is why we need Christ. This is why we need to rest in the finished work of Christ, believing that He has paid for all of our sins. Are you an Assyrian today? Are you an enemy of God? Are you here today and you're not a Christian? You're an enemy of God. And I have news for you. God is angry with you. 
If you've not repented of your sin, and you've heard the Lord Jesus Christ, and you've heard Him taught all that He's done, His work, His person, and all of that, and you stiff-arm that glorious invitation, you're God's enemy. Now, I know some want to say, but doesn't God grade on a curve? I mean, I volunteer at the rescue mission. I, I do all these acts of kindness. I feed the homeless. Um, you know, but doesn't God grade on a curve? Won't, won't, won't my good just kind of outweigh the back negative? No, He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. Jesus came and died that brutal death, of which I've already spoken about, to pay for the sins of unworthy sinners. The invitation is simply, come to Christ, and you'll be under that divine protection, not only escaping His just wrath, right, but also joy in this life. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this prophecy. We thank You for Nahum, a man that will be interesting to meet in heaven, a man that was marked by humility, but had a burden and an oracle And this prophecy being laid out, Lord, what a wonderful thing it is to know that your wrath is tempered by your mercy towards us. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.